0: Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane
2: Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher and Google Play. Be sure to leave a 5-star rating and a review
1: for us. Also, as you may have noticed, unlike a lot of podcasts, we don't do ads on this show, and that's because both Doug and I work for nonprofit organizations, uh, so didn't think that that would be appropriate. However, if you would like, you can go to rstreet.org or lone star policy is it .org or .com.
2: LoneStarPolicyInstitute.org
1: Yeah, LoneStarPolicyInstitute.org And if you go there, there are ways to donate to the host organizations Or if you don't want to do that, there's plenty of research and documentation on the policy issues that we discuss That we'll be discussing today and on other shows So with that infomercial out of the way, today we're going to be talking about crime Which is uh, a subject that, you know, uh, we should all be interested in
2: I and, love doing how-to episodes.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you know, in the immortal words of Governor Robert Ritchie, "Crime, boy, I don't know." Okay, so our guest to talk about this now that we've had enough fun is Derek Cohen. Derek, are you on the line? I am,
0: and actually, guys, I do have a Casper uh, mattress code. It is Jailbreak uh, <laughs> Two Thousand Nineteen. So, if you could just go ahead and. Uh, Enter that at the uh, promo box, uh,
1: we'll all get in business. Actually, before we start, you do know that there is a, I don't know if conspiracy theory is the right word, but there's a theory out on the internet that the reason why there are so many mattress stores is because it's a money laundering operation, allegedly. I'm not endorsing this, but have you heard this theory?
0: I have not heard this yet, no.
1: Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's a, I mean, not with Casper, obviously but other unnamed mattress store companies uh, may or may not be involved in illicit activity. Well, now that we've opened ourselves to a potential libel suit, uh, Derek, so you are the director of Right on Crime and the director for the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Is that basically right?
0: Exactly. So here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we're a, a conservative free market think tank. And one of the the areas that we focus on is is criminal justice and um, right on crime then is kind of our national campaign to that effect.
1: Okay, great. So we're going to talk about a couple of things today. Mostly as they relate to Texas, uh, although these are issues that come up in a bunch of different states as well. So, the first item that I would like to talk about is bail reform. Uh, I know that there is going to be legislation on this subject in the legislature. There are certainly, there are currently some lawsuits pending in various parts of the state. But, you know, other than having watched an occasional episode of Dog the Bounty Hunter uh, and the Fall Guy, Uh, from back in the 80s. I don't personally know a whole lot about the bail system and... Some of our listeners may be uh, in the same boat. So could you just kind of explain, you know, what is bail? How does it currently work?
0: Certainly. So obviously when somebody gets arrested, we then have to make uh, arrangements for them, or more specifically, we have to make arrangements. Um, And during that arraignment, we can decide whether or not an individual should be released or should be held pending uh, their trial. Now, as the criminal justice system grew and grew and times to adjudication grew and grew, It's taken a lot more time between the actual arrest and getting somebody fully adjudicated. And so that kind of leaves this question is, what do we do with folks in the interim? You know, if we hold on to somebody in the county jails for, you know, months on end, it creates a massive hardship for taxpayers. It creates a massive uh, constitutionally dubious uh, situation in which somebody is being uh, functionally detained and has not been convicted of any crime. And also, just from a very pragmatic point, it takes up space and it takes up dollars. So one of the things we do is allow people to secure their own release. And the purpose of bail or bond is to actually put some collateral up so that they have, quote unquote, skin in the game. So an individual who, you know, is low risk, uh, you know, they'll probably show up. You know, you'd say, oh, well, they might need, you know, a lower bail. Well, unfortunately, we're still imposing this bail onto them and they're still going to have to go and either get it through a, a bondsman to actually post the full value of that bail and you know say the money that they get from that is 10% and even if the case is uh, dismissed or you might have a case where somebody has so many I'd say red flags for future offending or reoffending or or it's such a pronounced flight risk that you want to set that bail prohibitively high and some states actually have a, a system for that called preventative detention here in Texas, we are guaranteed bail, uh, say for capital murder, but we are guaranteed bail. And so to functionally preventatively detain, we see individual judges usually setting bail at you know $3 million or something, some astronomical number, so that individual is not able to post that, but it also is able to satisfy that, that particular condition of uh, a, bail, a bail amount being set.
1: Right. So obviously we have a situation here where there's trade-offs. One is if you're keeping people in jail prior to trial or a conviction, that's costly to the state and it, there's also a liberty concern involved cuz they haven't been convicted of anything. On the other hand, we want to make sure that people show up for their trial dates, uh, which, you know, if they're at liberty, they might not do that and there's also, of course, a public safety rationale. We don't want people getting out and committing more crimes uh, while we're waiting to put them in prison for the previous crimes that they may or may not have committed. I know that there's some lawsuits going on challenging the existing bail practice. I think uh, in Houston or Harris County and maybe some other counties, what's the argument there? What What's wrong with the current system and the balance that we have right now?
0: And certainly, and I'm going to try to do my best not to mix terms here, uh, but the Houston, you know, the Harris County bail uh, situation is probably the most typical, and and some of the other uh, places where their lawsuits exist. One of which being Dallas County, another the other being Galveston. Uh, the, the Galveston one actually having the DA himself uh, named, you know, named his party. Um, essentially, the problem causes uh, arises from uh, over reliance on what's known as a, as a bail schedule or you know use of mechanical bail. So. Usually when we have when we're arraigning somebody, there isn't there is an asymmetry of information there. We don't always have full clarity into that individual's criminal history. We don't always have full clarity into maybe problematic inflection points of their criminal history. You know, for example, did we have somebody, you know, in custody before and they were bailed out or given, you know, or basically given a recognizance bond and then just never showed up again? That obviously would be very, very troubling to somebody setting bail. And so they don't always have that information in front of them. And so what there's a reliance on doing in some of these larger counties, and you also, I, I, I can't uh, stress enough that a lot of this just comes from the absolute volume uh, that these particular county courts are having to clear. What we're actually seeing is that they rely on this mechanical bail schedule. In other words, you show up and it says, you know, drug possession $1500 and so that means you know $1500 you could get you know 10% of that would be 150 and you can secure your release but it has nothing it has no reflection of one your individual risk factors you know those different things in your criminal history or in your past that indicate whether you're a flight risk or whether you're a threat to society and it also doesn't take into account your current financial situation i mean this seems a bit rote but you know a really high bail can be set for a person of means and that can be met and a very low bail can be set for a person who's destitute and that cannot be met but none of that has anything to do with the you know the facts of the case or their likelihood to to show back up again and so what we have there is basically almost a means test within that particular part of the criminal justice process and so what a lot of the what the fifth circuit decision has done in Harris County is it really good, is specifically for misdemeanants uh, in this lawsuit, or I'm sorry, the, the mostly settled lawsuit, uh, basically said, look, for misdemeanants, you know, we're going to basically judicially impose this large system of release. And, you know, to be honest with you, that judicial, you know, that judicial fiat, it hasn't resulted in the best outcomes simply because there's no, again, there's very little risk analysis on going on who are we sending away and who are we keeping and also there, I also hasten to add, there was a hurricane in there too. So that kind of hurt uh, appearance rates as well. We generally seen that judicially foisted solutions are not necessarily the best, simply because while they usually are legally sound, or at least sound to the, the rationale of those particular judges, they don't take into any of the, pract- you know, any of the practical effects in account. And that's kind of why we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of heartburn by the realignment in California as well.
1: Yeah, and I would I'd like to go into a little bit more detail about what's happening in California. But so it sounds like you know uh, if there's definitely a problem with the current system, whether people are getting released depends on how much money that they have, not necessarily the risks they pose to society. And and you know someone might be able to make bail because they're connected, you know, uh, through drugs or some sort of organized crime thing. They have access to a lot of. Capital, whereas they could still be pretty dangerous. One solution to that, one response might be, "Well, okay, let's just let more people out pending." And it sounds like that's not what you're saying uh, should be the appropriate response. So, what should happen? You know, what how should the, should the system change uh, in order to better account for you know keep keep the bad, the dangerous people in jail uh, without keeping too many other people in there that don't really pose a threat to society.
0: Certainly. And so you have to basically look at what kind of, what kind of errors are we getting in our current bail system. And, and, and they go two ways. We have the error in which that, that you identified that where somebody who can successfully secure a bail, even one that was set prohibitively high, is then able to purchase their freedom regardless of the risk they pose. On the other side of that is we have somebody who's let's say a very low risk, but not necessarily doesn't have access to much means. They're actually going to be held because even though they're low risk, there's a almost an under or no reliance on on, on recognizance options that allows somebody to basically you know promise that they'll show up again. And so we're, we can miss it both coming and going. The first way is very, very dangerous, in which we peg means instead of risk as the what decides a release decision. And on the second way, it is uh, it is problematic because again we're taking up bed space in pretrial detention simply because somebody is not of means. Now a lot of folks message us from different ways. They say, "Oh, it, we have a system that is you know fundamentally inequitable simply because some people can't post bond." But that argument in and of itself doesn't take risk into account as well. So what? What we suggest, and what a lot of I would say, you know, centrist and center right leading folks in here are suggesting, is simply looking at moving the system from one of financial considerations to one of risk. And so, how would you do that? You, all, you, one way would be to actually have a risk assessment instrument. Now, I have to caution here: a lot of folks have heard of risk assessments and they think this black box that has these racially biased algorithms. Now, risk assessments can be, have racial bias in them, but that's usually with these long, you know, these several, these multifactorial instruments that take in ecological factors. You know, do you hang out with people that have a criminal history? Do you hang out in a bad neighborhood? Things like that, which is that's where they see it as the inflection point for for racial biases. If you look at most of the pretrial risk assessments, specifically the one that's being promulgated here in Texas uh, by the Office of Court Administration. One of the things that they have here is it's a seven to 10 question uh, assessment that is based solely on the individual's criminal history and relevant information to that criminal history, such as failures to appear. And what that does is it looks just at that individual. You can validate on those factors for flight. You can validate on those factors for reoffense. And at the end of the day, we're making sure that that bed space, which let's not miss the fact that, you know, bed space in a local jail is finite. You know, we are prioritizing that that bed space is then being used for those that would be risky to either not show up or to harm us. And then on the other side, You know if we know somebody is a pronounced low risk is there any value in charging that person bail or asking them post a bond if we know that that person you know is going to show up again so that means we should be expanding or creating a presumption of you know that recognizance release nowhere in here does this actually get rid of cash bail and that's where i think some of the misinformation is here it just means that when cash bail is assessed that bail is being assessed at a more actuarial sound level than just something that we do uh, by force of habit.
1: So, what would you say to the argument that you know the thing about bail is uh, yes, you're right. It's expensive to keep people in there, but uh, it's better safe than sorry. So perhaps you know in the in the same way, if the current system isn't working and is releasing dangerous people, maybe we just instead of tinkering with the the schedules or other things like that, we just needed to to uh, have. Prohibited bail, or deny, change the system so we can deny bail to people altogether more often.
0: Certainly, and and, I mean that—that's definitely one approach, and that's kind of part and parcel to what uh, they looked at doing in uh, California, which is not um, obviously not something we'd probably be too. uh, uh, keen on adopting here uh, on on both sides of the uh, the errors we talked earlier. But the problem is with, I mean, we're functionally working with, again, with imperfect information. And the best bet that we have right now is somebody, and when I say somebody, I usually mean a judge. It could be a magistrate or all the way up to a district judge. And they're essentially arraigning uh, this individual, based on whatever information they have uh, in front of them. Now, this judge might be an extremely good judge of character and can suss this out, uh, suss this out. But it, it it basically turns out to be you know what's somebody's gut level intuition on what this person's risk of flight or reoffense is. And so that in and of itself has led to just you know tragedy after tragedy. You know we've we've kept people far longer than they need to to guarantee that they show up for trial. And on the other side, you know we see. Um, you know, we see tragedies such as what happened to Officer Allen, who was slain by an individual who was out on bail for, of all things, assaulting a police officer. And so his criminal history was not adequately reflected in that in that bond amount. And we ended up with the the tragedy that, that, that happened. And so moving to a more centralized risk-based system, one that is, you know, accountable for actuarially predicting um, these results you know, is a step in the right direction and will lead to better results than the status quo. All
2: right. Can you, uh, if you want to change the subject for a moment, uh, tell us what's going on with the uh, ban the box.
0: Certainly, certainly. So ban the box, that's, and that's a, that's a very interesting thing. Ban the box in and of itself is something that I support. And by support, I mean, if a company decides to evaluate its hiring process and figure that criminal history, or a, a more limited or more nuanced consideration of criminal history, is good for the their hiring process. Then I more I wholeheartedly laud any company that does that themselves. You know, we've seen Best Buy, Target, the Coke Industries, uh, a whole bunch of um, I, I would say notab- notable national organizations have done this on themselves.
1: Uh, so I just want to clarify for people who are not up on the lingo, uh, the 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 box in question is that. When you have a job application, there's a box there that says, Do you have a a criminal history? something like that. And you have to if you check yes, the thinking goes that you know you're probably not gonna get an interview, not gonna progress along the path towards getting a job. So the idea is that employers would either choose or ban the box, they would be prohibited from asking about job applicants' criminal history until some later point in the process, like when you're ready to give a job offer, or something like that. Is that that basically it?
0: Uh, essentially, yeah. And and so the difference between Ban the Box and, say, like a more organized campaign like Fair Chance Hiring just has to do with who's that being, you know, who's that being forced upon. Usually we see Ban the Box used as a title, uh, more so when it's uh, a public sector entity deciding not to inquire themselves or to inquire later on in the process. Uh, the Fair Chance Hiring campaign is more to have that basically forced upon private employers.
1: When I first heard Ban the Box, I thought, was that like you? You want to get rid of solitary confinement, or is it about when people, you know, in in traffic, when people pull out during a green light, they're trying to turn and they they end up blocking traffic. Don't block, don't Just block the box. The box. Yeah, the, yeah. This is neither of those. This this is about people with criminal histories in the employment process.
0: No, and I would actually argue that in the latter, the folks that block the box probably are more uh, deserving of criminal histories, but. <laughs> we talk about that later on, um, but yeah. So, so the problem with with ban the box that that isn't uh, fully and judiciously uh, entered into by the individual organization deciding to do it is that you know we're painting with this one size fits all brush, and so this is why uh, we've opposed fair chance hiring here in Austin uh, and in other places is because essentially when you say that somebody cannot inquire into a uh, individual's criminal history, you have you have two, uh, I would say, two detrimental effects that come there. You have the first one is that not everyone's hiring process looks the same. Some some folks' hiring process have a lot of uh, uh, moving parts that are that do depend on criminal history. And while it says that, oh well, except we're a provi- allowed by law, you know, otherwise the way that's interpreted is you can only ask if that criminal history is per se disqualifying from whatever that occupation might be. Well, what if it happens to be that that criminal history really nuances how you can use that particular employee? You still can't make that uh, determination until you've given a provisional job offer. So that's the first problem is basically treating all employees are hi- all employers hiring practices as one size fits all. On the other side of the aisle, you have the issue where when a, a legitimate uh, a legitimate inquiry into criminal history is uh, forbid, uh, is forbidden, usually more pernicious biases take root. And the way we see this play out is, you know, while uh, folks with a criminal history get a, you know, a non-existent to very slightly observable benefit in jurisdictions that have passed fair chance hiring, what you do see is women and people of color having far worse hiring uh, outcomes, uh, simply because, again, what when that happens, folks look at that and then start, you know, basically, they'll either do a background check on their own on, on one of these internet sites uh, and just not do it officially, or they're going to assume that gaps in history, even gaps in history that can be fully explained by legitimate and even noteworthy uh, and even, uh, you know, laudable uh, events such as, you know, the mothering a child or something, they tend to read of that as the worst case scenario, uh, you know, maybe even including up to uh, having, you know, criminal history during that particular gap, and so that tends to actually have an aggregate detriment as opposed to a very small, concentrated benefit that we can't uh, even measure uniformly in all studies.
1: Related to this, when people get uh, out of out of prison, they serve their time or whatnot. We would like them to be reintegrated into society. However, there are, as I understand it, limitations as far as which professions or occupations someone with a criminal history can continue to engage in, particularly professions that require a license. They may be Prohibited from doing so. It used to be the case that, you know, in the Texas prisons, you would have these job retraining programs for inmates that included professions that they were prohibited from engaging in once they got out. You, I know, ha- have advocated changes to. The existing system of restrictions on what jobs ex-offenders are able to take once once they've served their time and get out. What is the status now, and what would you like to see change as far as that goes?
0: And so you hit the nail on the head, Josiah. One of the biggest issues, and you know, working for a it, it's difficult here working for a center right think tank uh, because the uh, you know the the policy argument I always want to have is you know should. The, should whatever, uh, occupation we're discussing even be licensed at all. Um, right. You know, and you know, I mean, we're not talking necessarily doctors or lawyers here, though. I do have some, uh, thoughts about licensing of lawyers that we can get into, <laughs> but like, you know, these, these things like that we have around here, like carpenters and things that where you know, basically being a, a, a sloppy tradesman at this particular craft is a death sentence in and of itself that we don't necessarily need to, uh, you know, have the government involved in giving permission slips, but Where it has to do with re entering, uh, you know, folks re entering society, I simply tend to defer to, okay, look, the legislature has already made the decision that, you know, profession X is going to be a, a licensed profession and that an individual will have to meet certain criteria. Now, what can we do looking at this to get as many people up to speed on this or as many people up to credential on this uh, as possible? And so that's why we're seeing a lot of work in this area that we're doing uh, part of the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition, you know, R Street being a partner in that. Uh, One of the things that we're looking at is occupational licensure uh, for, for folks with criminal histories. And so right now, we essentially have a you know, a smattering of occupations that almost any criminal history makes somebody running the risk of, of not getting that credential. When in turn, what that actual risk should be or what that credential should look at uh, when it comes to disqualifying people is if we we're going to assume that one's past behavior is predictive of future behavior and that argument diminishes over time very rapidly, almost non-existent once you cross seven years. But if we're going to believe that that is what actually the case is, how do we make sure that we're only limiting that person from professions that the the profession itself is directly related to the offense? So we're at least making sure that there's some you know, logical thread in denying someone a license because we think they're going to do something bad on that job if we give it to them. At least making sure that the crime that we're connecting that to has something to do with, you know, the profession itself. A good example of this, you know, you have an individual who wants to be a, a licensed childcare worker. Well, if that person has some, you know, sex offenses in their past, that's a, that's a hard no. However, if a person has say a theft charge, does that mean that person should not be an electrician? Or is there an opportunity to give a more limited scope license for that case? These are all things that we're looking at. Uh, is, you know, as sessions getting going. One of the bills that uh, was just filed, and this is one that's strongly supported by the uh, the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition, is uh, Senate Bill uh, five twenty three uh, by Senator Hinojosa. And what this does is it mandates exactly that that any disqualifying crime for a particular profession is at least related to that. And it also provides that when the commission, I'm sorry, when TDLR, the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation, when they actually issue a denial of a license, make sure that they're actually giving a little more guidance there. You know, what could a a subsequent application that would you know engender more costs and 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 more paperwork, but if you're going to require that, what could a future application include that actually you know, assuages the concerns that the uh, that the licensure board had, and that's just common sense things. Uh, this is, and I, I try to illustrate the difference between this and, and some of the folks on the left uh, support, which is, you know, we need to have these robust job programs in which people are given jobs. No, this just gets the government out of the way, and I think that the benefit we can see in these particular professions by just getting the government to recognize its very small, limited role here. I think we're going to see some massive success stories because of that.
1: I think it is important that we do believe in second chances and the possibility of redemption. And when people have paid their debt to society and and get out of prison, there needs to be opportunity for them to reintegrate and be able to make a living so that they don't become either a ward of the state, right? They don't end up being dependent on government assistance because they can't get a job or they slide back into a life of crime either. Ne- neither of those I think are good for society. So to the extent that you know we're able to uh, remove these, these blockers uh, without harming public safety, that seems like it's a very important part of the overall picture
0: I, I would I would agree and of course you know the, uh, the, the the conservatarian in me says well we need to have a broader debate about the actual preventative value of licenses but we can we can save that uh, uh, for a different time
1: right yeah we've had uh, in the past we've had our our very first episode uh, covered occupational licensure and it's a topic that I'm sure we'll be re- revisiting in the future. So you, as you mentioned, uh, R Street and TPPF are bar- both part of the Smart on Crime Coalition. Are there any other things of note going on uh, it, with the Texas legislature that the Smart on Crime Coalition is interested in? Yeah,
0: and one thing I would, I would definitely like to underscore, obviously the different organizations uh, you know, prioritize things differently, TPPF specifically. Uh, puts a lot more emphasis on reforming civil asset forfeiture and reforming our grand jury system uh, than some of our partners do. But I think one thing that we all agree on and that really stands to a improve public safety and b save the state a whole lot of money um, is reforming our state jail system. So when everyone thinks of the criminal justice system, they just see bars and folks on the other side of there. Some folks go down to that next level and they say, "Oh, well there's a difference between jails and prisons." You know, county jails being the basically the the local entity detaining folks pre-trial or for a very short period of time, and then states being the, you know, the more long-term accommodations. Well, Texas has this weird I would say third tier and it's a middle tier, and it's called state jails. And so what this is designed to be Is it was designed to be for drug offenders, a short term facility. We actually created a state jail felony, a a fourth degree felony that was supposed to be just for substance abuse offenses uh, that didn't have the, the larger time window. And so we would hold people, you know, for 18 months to two years and give them the rehabilitation they need. You know, we try not to keep them in so long that they really start stacking up the collateral consequences, but in long enough to, to A, dry them out, give them some, some substance abuse and criminogenic rehabilitation, and maybe even some voc ed. Now, the problem is the whole idea of housing somebody for a short period of time, we executed that really well. And we actually had uh, subsequent policies with knock-on effects, such as giving folks credit for time served, giving them more time in jail. Uh, towards that. So if they actually plead out to a state jail, they have less time going in there, they're only there for a couple months, you know, not enough time to do any sort of training and everything. And we also failed to uh, fund as a legislature, we failed to fund the rehabilitation uh, component and the training component just it it was a non starter just because of how shortly uh, we had these folks. So what we have essentially did is create this tier of a system where we just hold people for a short period of time, just long enough to lose their job, lose their home, you know, get those collateral consequences, but not enough to actually rehabilitate. And then we're surprised when we see uh, three or four out of five of them, you know, here again in short order, the recidivism rate for the state jail system is absolutely abysmal. Whereas our recidivism rate for our state prison system, much longer term offenders, more serious offenders, is far, far better. And so what we do is we actually see that it's not imprisoning somebody that fixes somebody, that, that, that is the correct in corrections. It's what we do while we have them here that really does. So that's one of the things we're looking at, getting people uh, diverted around that uh, in the best way possible. Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, Doug Smith over there is doing some excellent work on this. Hey, but the problem is we just have we have all these well-intended uh, policies that tend to wreak havoc when the robber meets the road. One, one such uh, issue with the state jail specifically is uh, Section 1244 of our uh, Code of Criminal Procedure. And you have 1244A and 1244B. A says you can take that state jail felony. And for all intents and purposes, you can treat it like a class A misdemeanor, a highest level misdemeanor. 1244B says you can just actually make it a, a class A misdemeanor. And the problem is that is more enticing to take a plea with that. And that comes with a you know time in state jails than actually going on probation. Because you, would you rather be off paper in a couple of months, or would you rather actually have to meet with a probation officer, take your analyses, pay day fees for the next three years? It's not. I mean, you know, we're rational people and we believe in incentives, and that's one of the incentive hiccups that we have in our current system.
2: So right now, it looks like the among the actual announced Democratic presidential candidates, Kamala Harris looks to be the front runner at the moment, and uh, there's a bit of a counter campaign calling her Kamala is a cop. And uh, so I just kind of want to get your impression. Are you, you know, with all the gains um, under this administration, under for criminal justice reform, such as the First Step Act, are you concerned that if someone like Kamala Harris uh, were, were to win in 2020, that some of those gains might be reversed? And, and maybe is that a little bit ironic that... The, uh, the party that seems to be a little bit more uh, geared towards criminal justice reform is now the Republican Party, and the party that seems to be getting more tough on crime is the Democrats. Any uh, comments on that? I
0: was going to say, yeah, several comments. Um, I, I think that observation, uh, party-wise, um, I, I can't really assent to that simply because, you know, it, it all goes, you know, these parties are made up of millions of folks. But uh, to the specific things that you've asked, I have noticed some things that I would say are troubling on the left side of the aisle, and I'd like to start with the Roger Stone thing and then, and again, answer your question about, uh, about Ms. Harris. And so one of the issues with the roger stone thing is obviously we had the you know kind of an, an opulent display of, of police militarization and you know that's something that we work on here i know that over at our street arthur riser has written a great deal on this and you know having been a former uh, policeman and prosecutor you know he has a lot of credibility in this and i find it very well uh, worded but the issue with roger stone specifically is not that they you know showed up you know in a militarized fashion to arrest a you know a sixty Six-year-old man who's in, you know, indictment almost uh, were, you know, surrounded crimes of the past that most people would, you know, have somebody show up at a, you know, at a precinct and or that especially when you already know that you're under uh, investigation from a grand jury. The problem is you see people basically cheering the the that militarized response when you see it, th- who's receiving it, and that is a, the most anathema thing to our criminal justice system is when you basically say the rules of the road are dependent on the people that are being subject to them. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that's one of the, that. I mean, that is ant, that, that is antithetical to say the least. And so what, that, that was really troubling. On the Kamala Harris front, I, I followed a little bit of, of that particular discussion. Uh, I, I don't believe uh, that if you look at what happened in the First Step Act and some of the things that uh, have been floated for the, you know, the next steps, I, I think that a lot of the sentencing side items would probably be safe. I do think that where I would have the biggest concern is where you start looking at what should a robust federal criminal justice reform look like. Well, it needs to address issues of over-criminalization. It needs to address issues of, of lacking mens rea in the 300,000 plus uh, federal regulations that can uh, you know, land you in a federal prison. And so that is where I would be worried. And it's not necessarily specifically, specific only to her. It's when we have folks that just, you know, believe in the inerrancy of the state, you know, they, they then try to make it easier for the state to do state things. And so having a default mens rea is something we've supported here for a long time. If somebody commits an offense, even a regulatory offense, shouldn't they, to a individually determinable level of culpability at least know that they were committing that offense. You know, this is the difference between strict liability and to knowingly do something. You know, strict liability is if something happens, it happens. You know, with a knowingly standard, you had to actually know that you are doing something that constitutes an offense, and there's a little bit more of a robust procedural protection to that. And so that's where I definitely would worry. You know, some things that uh, when I started here at TPPF, one of the things I worked on uh, was getting... uh, basically truant, you know, truant children out of the courts, Uh, you know, that our courts were handling uh, kids who skip school as a, as the measure of first resort, just trying to get them out of, uh, you know, kind of the criminal justice process. Now, should they be punished? Yes. Should they be punished by the law? No. And so to see some of the uh, record on that was a little troubling for me, but as far as some of the other areas where it comes to police discipline Uh, and other sort of procedural nuance. To be honest with you, I don't really see that as much different uh, than I see kind of the prevailing orthodoxy of these particular offices. I do think that the police accountability movement, as they call themselves, is well-intended, but I also think that they are, you know, the first to throw the voice of actual law enforcement uh, under the bus. Even law enforcement who would like to see, you know, reforms in the same vein, if not similar reforms to... Uh, what they're advocating for. And so we end up at this impasse. So I also want to, uh, highlight something that, uh, my colleague Mark Levin said uh, about this. Uh, I can't remember the outlet that he gave the interview to, uh, but he generally said that, you know, we can't take her period, you know, her time as a prosecutor as, you know, as, as basically, oh, well, she's not down with criminal justice reform. There are a lot of prosecutors who are on board with criminal justice reform. If you, uh, seen you know, and followed the first step act at all. You saw that the first step act was actually supported by the NDA, the National District Attorneys Association. And so you actually see prosecutors who, you know, because they don't want to be prosecuting the same people over and over and over again, rightfully so really get it right on both the the sentencing and the uh, rehabilitation side and so looking at anybody as a monolith uh, due to their profession I think is, is a little short-sighted and that's what I saw a lot uh, percolating up in that particular argument but I do think that there are identifiable items that do give me pause
1: Derek, uh, thank you for joining us. If people want to learn more about these issues, where can they go besides Uh they,
0: they can go to, uh, now granted, you know, Right on Crime is just a fledgling organization and, you know, we can't nearly compete with R Street. But if you like a complimentary view, um, just go on over to uh, rightoncrime.com, uh, Twitter at Right on Crime. Uh, you know, we keep basically anything that our policy expert uh, put out. We try to circulate on both social media and on our uh, website itself. So anything that we discussed here today, uh, you'll probably find uh, in in pretty large measure over there as well.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much for joining us today.